Hello, my name is Christopher Domitio. This is a very good novel, Coronavirus, Chapter 12, An Army Assembled. If you want to hear the previous 11 chapters or uh, read what I've written so far, you can find that at averygoodnovel.com or vagabond.com, along with everything else that I've written. Uh, and it is free. Uh, this novel isn't done yet. Uh, the ending is coming up soon, though. But for right now, here is Chapter 12, An Army Assembled. At this point in our story, there's a lot going on. The entire world is under lockdown. Three strains of coronavirus are attacking the human population. The Russians are trying to destroy America. Donald Trump is trying to pull himself further up while using the combined wealth and magnitude of the United States of America, the MAGA companies, and his own ruthless organization, while trying at the same time to destroy the heads of the MAGA companies, the poor people of America, the people of color of the world, non-Christians, and many more with his own power. Bob was stumbling his way into becoming a revolutionary leader. The U.S. Post Office was covertly assembling the largest guerrilla army ever conceived, and the planet's consciousness was trying to prevent a climate change mass extinction by becoming involved in a fight against fascism, corporate capitalism, and negative consciousness pools that were turning humans from a pretty terrible species to an even worse one. Yes, there's a lot going on. But wait, there's more. The first months of the pandemic made made it impossible for any of the politicians and power figures in the United States to ignore truth that had been staring them in the face for almost four years. Donald Trump wasn't going anywhere. It didn't matter if he lost the Electoral College, the popular vote, or both. He was not going to step aside. While Democrats had impeached him, he had shored up his defenses in the Republican Party. The courts and the departments of Justice, Interior, Commerce, Transportation, Treasury, Energy, Agriculture, and Homeland Security. He'd gutted the leadership of the Departments of Defense, the State Department, and Labor, the Department of Education, and the Department of Housing and Urban Development were all but meaningless at this point, as his buffoonish appointees destroyed them without even having to suggest anything. He had unconfirmed appointees running most things, and when they displeased him, he would fire them without notice and put another loyalist in their place. The post office was outside of his control, as it had been taken down from the cabinet level in 1971 by President Richard Nixon, who had been afraid the postmaster general was spying on him. Within the armed forces of the United States, there was a growing discontent among the non-white troops as they recognized that their communities were being discriminated against. Promotions had turned subtly racist after the first years of Trump's presidency, with white soldiers, sailors, and airmen and marines being raised up with more and more frequency. This led to an interesting situation as more and more troops of color were subtly encouraged to leave the service. Without hot wars going on, the mostly white upper leadership had little use for cannon fodder. None of this was said overtly, of course, but the troops knew what was going on. For those who were dedicated lifers working towards a retirement at 20 years or later, this was problematic. Many of them were offered early retirement, while others were encouraged to leave the active duty military and become part of their state's National Guard. Even after the deployments of the past 30 years, where reservists had been activated for longer and longer periods, there was still a feeling amongst active duty service members that the weekend warriors were an inferior part of the armed service. So when guys who had served 18 years or more were encouraged to finish up their terms in, of service in the Guard, it was built a shitload of resentment. A lot of them left the armed forces altogether and served the last couple of years in federal civilian jobs like the post office, the FAA, or working in the prison systems or as correctional officers. An interesting division of power lies between the states and the federal government in the USA. Governors have a huge amount of executive authority within the states, and while the federal law is the law of the land, states are not under obligation to comply with anything that isn't written into the Constitution of the United States. A leftover from the American Revolutionary and Civil Wars was deep distrust of federal power, and thus, each state was actually an autonomous entity within a confederation of states who agreed upon a shared set of rules. The President of the United States is the Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Armed Forces, and each governor is the Commander-in-Chief 
chief of their state's National Guard. This strange state of affairs came about in 1878, after governors from the former Confederate States of America used their political clout to have the 7th Cavalry and all other federal troops disempowered to enforce the Constitution within the confines of the United States of America. Essentially, the 7th Cavalry had been created to make sure that African Americans in the former Confederacy were not being treated like second-class citizens. The law that ended it was called the Posse Comitatus Act. It was a later Dick Act, and I'm not joking on that name, that allowed governors to use state militias, now called the National Guard, within their own states. An agreement between the states and the federal government allows the U.S. government to federalize National Guard troops in the return for paying for the training and equipment of those troops, an expense which used to fall on the states. This is the reason that state troops reservists go through the same training as federal troops who are on active duty. Every day, Donald Trump demonstrated just what kind of human being he was, just how much responsibility he felt towards states that weren't loyal to him and where his loyalties really lay. No surprise that during this chaos, there were those who were looking at what it would mean to secede from his country. If Donald Trump was going to continue to rule, there were more than a few governors who began looking at alternatives to remaining a part of the United States. One of those governors was Gavin Newsom of California. Newsom was part of a political dynasty, which some had called a political mafia. Four San Francisco families have controlled California, the world's fifth largest economy for most of the past 50 years. Newsom was the former mayor of San Francisco and inherited the governorship from his father's good friend, Jerry Brown, who had taken it from Ronald Reagan back in the 1970s after his father, Pat Brown, was dispatched or displaced by Reagan. Newsom's aunt, Nancy Pelosi, was the powerful Speaker of the House, third in line for the presidency, and in the event that something should happen to Donald Trump or Vice President and or Vice President Mike Pence, she would become the president. The three families were also deeply entwined with Senator Dianne Feinstein, the heiress of another family that had gotten wealthy from their political connections in California. It was the Newsom, Brown, Pelosi, and Feinstein families that controlled California for decades. They were not making going to let some third-rate carnival barker like Trump take any part of their sovereignty. Newsom was making plans. California has always maintained armed checkpoints between neighbor states. These are called agricultural inspection points, but in truth, they're militarized borders. As Pelosi and Trump came into more and more conflict in Washington, D.C., Pelosi had briefed her nephew and other families about the danger that Trump posed. Trump had never managed to get a foothold in California, but he wanted one. Every time he came to the state, embarrassing situations arose. Trump had managed to buy a 30% stake of the Bank of America Center in San Francisco. His share was valued at almost half a billion dollars, but he still wasn't welcome in the city despite owning a mansion in Beverly Hills and the Trump National Golf Club in Los Angeles. He was still greeted with jeers and boos whenever he set foot in either city. Donald Trump hated California, and he wanted to bring it to its knees. The problem was California's estate was more powerful than he was, even as president of the United States. When Trump began to go full dictator, Newsom's California was going to be ready. In addition, his administration had been engaging in good old-fashioned statecraft by developing agreements, treaties, and working relationships with the governors of Washington, Oregon, New York, and Nevada. He'd also managed to make inroads with Alaska's Republican governor as Trump began to trample on state rights during the pandemic. Newsom had three planned prongs of attack. First, the tech gatekeepers in Silicon Valley were Californians, first and American second, with the exception of Larry Ellison and many of the venture capitalist firms. Second, Newsom cultivated power relationships with the leadership of California National Guard. Finally, California had independent trade and immigration agreements with Mexico, Canada, Japan, and China, and these opened the door to other agreements. When Gavin Newsom activated the California National Guard, he had no intention of ever deactivating them. In fact, he planned on expanding them.